Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Tonight on The Readout. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election, and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Attorney General Merrick Garland appoints a special counsel to lead the Trump investigations. Does this move us closer to an indictment? Or is it just window dressing for when they let him off the hook? Plus, Elon Musk crashes Twitter like a driverless Tesla with a broken AI brain. The site has been trashed at times, but I will tell you why it deserved a better fate than this. And a tale to caucuses, House Democrats seamlessly transition into a bright new future, while Kevin is held hostage by the screaming zombies. Brains! We begin tonight with this moment in history. Good evening. A former federal judge today was named independent counsel, the special prosecutor in the Iran case. He is 74-year-old Lawrence Walsh, a former president of the American Bar Association. And as NBC's law correspondent Carl Stern reports tonight, his investigation is expected to range over a wide area. Lawrence Walsh spent six years investigating the Iran-Contra scandal and President Ronald Reagan's involvement in the scheme to sell arms to Iran to raise money for an illegal guerrilla war in Nicaragua. Ultimately, six people were indicted or convicted, including Reagan's defense secretary, the assistant secretary of state, the national security advisor, and three CIA officials. Reagan was forced to give a national address on August 12, 1987, and take responsibility for this embarrassing period in his presidency. But in the end, all six of the indicted men were pardoned by Reagan's successor, George H.W. Bush, at the recommendation of Bush's attorney general, William Barr. Yeah, that William Barr. That was the next independent counsel investigation following the one more than a decade earlier, the Watergate investigation of Richard Nixon, which also resulted in indictments and convictions, and for which Nixon ultimately resigned. Both of those investigations, Watergate and Iran-Contra, were denounced at the time by Republicans as partisan witch hunts, in the case of Watergate, by none other than Gerald Ford, who succeeded Nixon and ultimately pardoned him. Fast forward to the 1990s, and America experienced the appointment of an independent counsel to investigate President Bill Clinton and a failed land deal called Whitewater, which morphed into an investigation of Clinton's sex life. In other words, an investigation with all the earmarks of an actual partisan witch hunt. It was so obviously political. The independent counsel statute was changed, giving us the special counsel statute we have today most recently used in the appointment of Robert Mueller to investigate possible Russia collusion by the Trump campaign in the 2016 election. Mueller's probe resulted in 34 indictment, indictments and preceded Trump's first of two impeachments. But far from slowing him down, the lack of accountability for Trump himself appeared to only embolden him. He simply screamed, partisan witch hunt, and about a third of the country bought it. Another third was disappointed in Mueller, and another third just didn't know what to think. 
Well, now Attorney General Merrick Garland has decided that the Mueller process is the way to go in the multiple cases involving Donald Trump, cases that his own Justice Department has been pursuing for a long, long time. Now, I should note that whatever special uh, special counsel recommends, it will still be up to the attorney general to make the final decision. So it will still be for Merrick Garland to decide whether to bring any potential charges against Trump for his assorted crimes. But with Garland indicating that this decision was made as a result of Trump's announced candidacy this week, two years before the presidential election, it turns out that Trump's little stunt worked. As Jose Paglieri, political investigations reporter at Daily Beast, explains. There is no way to look at this announcement, if you can even call it an announcement, as anything other than an attempt to mar any prosecution as a political persecution of him. Trump announcing is going to run could absolutely be viewed as him trying to seek further cover so that if he, if he does get indicted for one of the many things that he's being investigated for right now, he could just say, oh, look at this. They just indicted me because I announced. They're just trying to stop me from winning for you in 2024. Joining me now is Neil Katyal, former acting solicitor general, now a law professor at Georgetown University and an MSNBC legal analyst. And Jill Weinbanks, former assistant Watergate special counsel, special prosecutor and an MSNBC legal analyst. And Jill, I'm going to start with you because, you know, it's it is hard to describe how apoplectic so many people are over this decision, because it's essentially saying that if you run for president, you can essentially escape direct prosecution and fall into this process that at least other than Nixon resigning, I mean, he resigned, lots of people went to jail. It has not resulted in direct legal consequences for any of the two presidents for which it seemed warranted. And in the case of Bill Clinton, well, that was a political prosecution. But the special count that the 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 count, the, the statute doesn't seem to re- result in accountability for the president. What do you make of the decision to do it this way? Well, first of all, I think your opening said everything that needs to be said. I My first response was a tweet that started, expletives deleted, because that's how I was really feeling. But I have calmed down a little bit. I no longer think that it will be a waste of time in the sense of delaying things, because then I realized when Archie Cox got fired and a new special prosecutor was brought in, we, the people who actually knew the facts, were kept on. If the new special counsel keeps the current staff and they seem ready for trial, they have brought in really experienced trial lawyers, it won't it won't delay a possible indictment. So that made me feel a little bit better. Yeah. That does not mean I think it's a good idea. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it was necessary. I understand the argument about special circumstances and the appearance of a conflict. There is no conflict right now. That's first of all. And I think it demeans the Department of Justice that I love and adore and really was proud to be part of. People at the Department yeah. of Justice operate on law and facts, not politics. And they yeah. could do this job. There does not seem to be a real need for a special counsel. That said, Jack Smith seems to have the right skill set. He's been involved in prosecuting a former president. It would happen to be of Kosovo, but it's still a right. former president. And I think he has some really good skills. 
Uh, Neil, let me bring you in because you actually rewrote the law on the special counsel law that used to, you know, sort of prevail before the Clinton debacle. So I am very curious to think to, to find out if you believe that this special counsel statute as it exists now is the, the, the right vehicle to use to deal with all of these potential crimes. So, Joy, I actually drafted the special counsel regulations that are being used now, not the pre-Clinton ones. So um, I right. am a fan of them in general, but I'm not fan- a fan of them here. So I think Jack Smith seems like a great person. He's got a public integrity background. He's the kind of prosecutor you want. I have no doubt that Donald Trump is going to start calling Jack Smith things like Jack the Hack and silly things like that. But this is a man who's investigated war criminals. I don't think he's being afraid of being called a few names by Donald Trump. But the decision to use the special counsel here, to me, the regulations doesn't make sense. I think it's inappropriate, and I think it risks delaying the investigation, because the regulations, as we drafted them, were really about the fear of a cover-up, that a attorney general couldn't investigate a president who, for wrongdoing who had nominated him. And so that was like the paradigmatic case. It was not something like this in which we've already had the investigation, particularly into Mar-a-Lago. The facts are out there. We all know that given those facts, if it were you, Joy, or Jill, or me doing any of those things <clears throat> and stealing all those documents, we'd be in jail. We wouldn't have a special master. We certainly wouldn't have a special counsel. We'd be in jail now. But Donald Trump gets something different. Why? Because Merrick Garland says, well, he's announced he's running for office and Biden has announced an intent to run as well. That, to me, is tantamount to rewarding Donald Trump for his maneuvers to try and avoid accountability. I think that, you know, Jack Smith is up to it, and I'm sure that he's going to indict because the evidence on Mar-a-Lago is so strong. It's an open and shut case. But precisely because it's an open and shut case, I don't think that a special counsel was needed. And Merrick Garland says, well, there's a conflict of interest because of Biden running in 2024. If that's true, that means there's a special counsel needed for all kinds of stuff, including the Hunter Biden investigation. That just, to me, doesn't make sense. And it doesn't remove the criticism of Garland, which is, you know, that he's acting politically, because under the regulations, at the end of the day, if Jack Smith says, I want to indict Donald Trump, who's got to sign off on it? A guy named Merrick Garland. So he's going to get all the same accusations because we know Trump and his base will always attack anyone who goes against Donald Trump's wishes. It doesn't matter if it's Merrick Garland. It doesn't matter if it's Jack Smith. It doesn't matter if it's Trump's own vice president, as we sadly learned uh, two years ago. You know, and uh, exactly. Very well said, Neil. I know you've got to go. I really appreciate you making some time to make that those very, very important points. Thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate you, my friend. Come back any time. And Jill, I'm going to go to you just on the point that Neil just made. I mean, Merrick Garland makes this decision sort of trying to make it sound apolitical. Number one, there is an investigation of Hunter Biden that's floating around there. Doesn't that mean that any investigation that involves anyone named Biden also needs to go to special counsel, number one? And number two, this is how Republicans are reacting. Ted Cruz tweeting, Joe Biden has completely weaponized the Department of Justice to attack his political opponents three days ago. Trump announced it a special counsel. And then you have Marjorie Greene, impeach Merrick Garland, which she's been saying even before this, and she's still saying it. So it's, it's, he got nothing. And now Republicans are trying to drumbeat some sort of criminal, you know, charges against 
a Biden. Doesn't all of it have to stop? It does. But I think to follow on on your point, in the same way that Mueller was never accepted as independent, neither will Jack Smith. And so you really gain nothing by this appointment. You hurt the Department of Justice going forward. You open the door to anybody who is in politics. Matt Gates announces I'm running for president. Okay, can't investigate him. It'll have to go to the state of Florida. Well, we already saw what happened in Florida. So it's a bad thing. You do not accomplish anything, even as qualified as Jack Smith seems to be. I can guarantee, as you said, that he is going to be attacked as a partisan hack. He will be called, you know, leading an investigation of 12 angry Democrats or however many people he has on his staff. It doesn't accomplish anything. And it does set a bad precedent for going forward. And yes, it would mean theoretically that every political investigation, anything that involves a politician or a politician's relative requires a special counsel. And then what's the point of the Department of Justice, which really does pursue things, you know, in a way that is based on law and fact and not on partisan considerations. So I think it was a bad idea. Jim Jordan, um, this is what he said about what they're going to do. He said, you know, let let me just do we have time. Can we play it? Here's Jim Jordan yesterday about what they plan to do in the House. Maybe it'd be nice. If the FBI and the Justice Department just stayed out of it, and let we the people decide who we think should represent us, who we think should lead us. That's supposed to be how America works. So this is the focus on the Judiciary Committee, the political nature at the Justice Department and the linkage now to what was happening with the Hunter Biden story. Again, just 15 days before we have a presidential election. And and so this makes the point. All that's going to happen to your point is this gives them an excuse to haul this guy, Jack Smith, in front of that man's committee, Jim Jordan, whose job is to scream at people in his committee and turn this whole thing into a circus. They're already promising to do it, Jill. A lot of things that are really terrible. They're going to have Benghazi style hearings that will lead to nothing because there's nothing there. There's no proper predication for these investigations. There is proper predication for the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago and for the further grand jury investigation and for what I would say based on public evidence is an indictment. I think indictment is absolutely, if we're gonna have a rule of law, there must be an indictment unless there is some hidden exculpatory evidence that we don't know about. And I cannot believe there is, because if there was, I guarantee you that it would have been told to us by either Donald Trump or one of his lawyers. So there is none. I would be willing to put money on that. Listen, I think a lot of people would. Jill Weinbanks with the fabulous uh, Scales of Justice pin, not feeling like the Scales of Justice were advanced today, but love the pin. Uh, We always and of course, we love you, Jill Weinbanks. Thank you very much. Up next on the readout, Elon Musk thought it was hilarious when he carried a sink into Twitter on his first day. But just three weeks later, his forty four billion dollar investment is swirling down a different bathroom fixture. We'll talk about why Twitter matters and how Musk screwed it up. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, 
which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Chaos and confusion are trending at Twitter as the company is on the brink of collapse, thanks to the fragile ego of billionaire CEO Elon Musk. It's reportedly teetering with offices closed amid a mass resignation on Thursday, coming after Musk issued an ultimatum, giving remaining staff the choice to commit to an extremely hardcore new Twitter or leave. It only adds to what looks like a controlled demolition of the company since Musk took over last month. The newly resigned will join at least 3,000 other former employees going into the holidays jobless after layoffs. Meanwhile, Musk, well, he posted a funeral meme reveling in Twitter's demise. It's a death that's far more tragic than just a website. It's not just a business story, but also a societal one. Twitter hasn't always been perfect, far from it, but it has changed the world as an integral space for public discourse. History professor Thomas Zimmer pointed out, Twitter has enabled people with absolutely no traditional access to power to speak to powerful elites directly, criticize them in the public square. How valuable this has been is evidenced by the fact that many of those elites are so consistently bemoaning persecution. That so-called persecution is right-wing trolls complaining that old Twitter leadership fixed problems, moderating hate speech and misinformation while trying to make Twitter more equitable and safe, and that that's a bad thing. So naturally, Musk fired the people in charge of that because he lives in a right-wing bubble, one where grievances of the anti-wokeism and MAGA warriors are real. And opening the floodgates for the return of fascist trolls will fix Twitter in the name of free speech. In reality, he's just burning the house down while fiddling like Nero and demonstrating his contempt for democracy. Today, he said there's no decision yet on reinstating Donald Trump, who, as we know, was permanently banned for exploiting the site to foment an insurrection. Joining me now is Mark Lamont Hill, media studies professor at Temple University and host of The Griot with Mark Lamont Hill, and Roger McNamee, former advisor to Mark Zuckerberg and co-founder of Elevation Partners. Welcome to you both to the show. Uh, Mark, I want to start with you because, you know, I, in some ways, it's sort of, I have a love-hate thing with Twitter. Twitter is really useful. There are a lot of journalists on it. There's a lot, you know, Black Twitter is on it, which is amazing. You learn a lot of information. I found out Michael Brown was killed because of Twitter. You, you find out good info. And you look at the, the we're going to put a, cu- a couple of the important movements, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, the Arab Spring, the Masa Amini protest movement. Twitter gave us that, but it also gives us fake accounts, disinformation and hate crimes. You know, what do you make of Twitter, Twitter's value and what do you make of its potential loss? 
I, I think Twitter is an amazing site of possibility. I always say Twitter, it, the problem with Twitter is that it takes people who, uh, or the value in Twitter is that it takes people who are far away and brings them closer together. And that, that's an amazing thing. Uh, it allows you to connect with new worlds. It makes the world smaller for you. You can access more things. Like you said, uh, whether it's Me Too or whether it's Arab Spring, we have the opportunity to understand lots of stuff in a different way. The problem is it also takes people who should be really far apart and brings them together. So you're now yeah. arguing with some guy in his mom's basement uh, about some social policy issue, or you're being trolled by some uh, MAGA, MAGA warrior in the middle of the country who you otherwise wouldn't have to know. And so those types of tensions are there because of of, of it. Um, I think when it was a public sphere, though, you had a way of saying, look, it is what it is. You get what you get. But now that that public sphere has been privatized and monetized by Elon Musk, it's getting more of a cesspool and it's going to be more and more dangerous. And right. That's why I no longer call it the public square, because it used to be the public square. But now that it's just one guy and the Saudis who own it, Roger McNamee, I want to get you in on this because, you know, it can be really dangerous, right? You had in the January 6th committee hearings, people testified to the fact that when Donald Trump tweeted, you know, it's going to be wild come January 6th, he turned a lot of people who didn't know the significance of January 6th onto it, drew that crowd to Washington. And then when he attacked Mike Pence again using Twitter, you know, there was testimony that that caused an immediate explosion that could have gotten Mike Pence killed. So, so Twitter is dangerous when unregulated. What do you make of the fact that Elon Musk's fix was to just make it unregulated again. So, yeah, Joy, the fundamental problem here is that we want to think of Twitter or Facebook or Instagram as a public square. But in fact, these are private corporations and always have been. Twitter in the old days, when it was good, the management team, I think, had a genuine desire to public service. And even then, they had massive failures and a lot of people got hurt. But Musk has a very different thing. He's suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is a psychology thing that basically happens when somebody who knows nothing about a topic overestimates their ability to deal with that topic. And so Musk goes in there. He thinks this is a machine and that people don't matter. And he can fire all the people and still make money from the machine. It does not work that way. This is a very fragile thing. and A lot of harm is going to be done. I don't think Twitter blows up in one sudden cloud of smoke. But I do think what's going on here is incredibly dangerous. And as Musk gets more desperate, I think you raise national security issues. What happens to the data? What happens? Who's actually running the ship? And all of those things are one big stew. And I'm really, really, really worried about it. And I think our government needs to inject itself immediately into the situation. Right. I mean, Mark, the, the Eli Lilly situation is a perfect example of it, right? You know, he decides to do this. We're going to let you sell you a blue check. And so people start changing up their names. Somebody impersonates Eli Lilly, which is horrible. They charge so much for insulin, says insulin is free. It's it dropped Eli Lilly's stock price. You know, it, it caused massive, dis, uh, you know, challenges, economic challenges that could have really exacerbated economic problems. And now this is a site that cannot attract advertisers. It's a chaos environment that just as a business story is a failure. Absolutely. It's actually quite stunning. It's remarkable uh, that someone who could amass such enormous personal wealth could be this bad at this. I mean, you would think if he just threw, you know, could just put a blindfold on and just pick things randomly uh, to do that he could have a better outcome or set of outcomes. And we've seen in the last couple of weeks, the blue check thing was so foreseeably terrible in idea. And yet, and everyone said it, but you know, to Roger's point, 
This is someone who has no idea what they're doing, but they're committed to doing it their way. Uh, the problem is, is real, there's real stakes attached. And I don't care if a multinational trillion or billion dollar corporation loses some money. That's not going to make me lose any sleep. But when you talk, start talking about national security, when you start talking about the well-being of everyday people, and when you start talking about the ability to advance our conversation and the cause of justice, now we got something to lose. Yeah. And a lot of people are going to be unemployed because of this. And, you know, Roger McNamee, you once advised Mark Zuckerberg, isn't part of the problem the elevation of these tech bros as some sort of geniuses, as if they are on this sort of higher level that they should almost be worshipped when they're actually just regular flawed people that are stupid about things and stupid about smart about some things. I mean, Elon Musk didn't invent the electric car. He bought Tesla. You know, that doesn't make him a genius. So, Joy, that is exactly correct. In this country, we defer to wealth as though anyone who becomes wealthy somehow has brilliance across every topic. And that just isn't so. And if you allow those people to be in charge of critical services like Facebook, like Twitter, like Fox News, you can have really bad outcomes. And our government, I think, needs to start recognizing that the public interest is in having a set of rules that protect citizens from harm. Because let's face it, Twitter today is unsafe. Cryptocurrencies are unsafe. Self-driving cars are unsafe. In fact, most tech products today are unsafe because nobody's watching. We defer to rich people and let them do what they want. Your last segment about Donald Trump, same exact issue. You know, there are no consequences for bad behavior. And that has to change. Yeah, absolutely. Trump literally got elected because he was rich and famous. And people said, well, he must know how to run the country. Wrong. Always wrong to go that way. Mark Lamont Hill, Roger McNamee. Excellent segment. Thank you both very much. And now uh, for even more on how social media helped get us to this moment of polarization and disinformation, check out the MSNBC Films presentation Split Screen this Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern and streaming on Peacock. And up next, a tale of two caucuses with Republicans in ruin and the discipline on display from the Democrats as they chart an orderly transition to the next generation of leadership. We'll be right back. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Right now in the U.S. House of Representatives, you have a tale of two very different caucuses. There's the Democrats, who are very much in array, as Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, and Pete Aguilar all appear to be poised to be elected to the top leadership positions in the caucus with no opposition. 
Republicans, on the other hand, may not be as lucky. Kevin McCarthy is already struggling to secure the 218 votes needed to win the speakership. So far, Congressman Andy Biggs and Matt Gates have said they are hard no's. But if Kevin does manage to get the gavel, it will likely be only because he made a deal with the extremists in his caucus and guaranteed enormous power to the people who are promising nothing but chaos and pointless investigations into things like Hunter Biden's laptop and the DOJ's handling of January 6th insurrectionists, who are where they belong, in jail. Join me now is Stuart Stevens, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. He's worked on five Republican presidential campaigns and is a contributor to Resolute Square, a new pro-democracy media platform taking on Fox News and right-wing media. Very much needed. Michelle Goldberg, columnist for The New York Times and an MSNBC political analyst. I want to play this for you guys. This is a really good mashup. I believe it's by Midas Touch. Take a look. We talked about the main issues, which is, you know, 40-year high inflation, record gas prices, skyrocketing crime. We now have record inflation all across this country at 40-year highs. He supports Biden's energy policies, which have made gas and utilities more expensive. Inflation, runaway immigration, crime problems around the country. Do they want to stay on the same path of inflation, of gas prices rising, of a cost of living as you go to the grocery store? This election is about the Biden agenda. People don't like high inflation, high crime, open borders, fentanyl. That's what we're talking about. I take it back. I love Midas Touch, but that was about us. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, Michelle Goldberg, let me just show you a graph. Not only are Republicans no longer talking about inflation and crime, they've dropped it. Uh, I think one tweet from Kevin McCarthy, notwithstanding. Fox News was averaging 141 weekly violent crime segments per week from Labor Day through Friday before the election. In the week of the midterms, they aired 71 weekday violent crime segments. It dropped 50 percent. Just in a week, it's just going down, 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 and they no longer care about crime and inflation. Your thoughts? I want to say two things. I mean, one, I think, you know, the whole... There really has been an increase in crime and it has, you know, there's been sort of troubling disorder in a number of major cities, but so out of proportion to the incessant coverage, you know, that make kind of American cities seem like some sort of, you know, 70s dystopian hellscape. And I also think that you saw what their first press conference was once it became clear that they had the majority, right? It wasn't about inflation. It wasn't about crime. It was about Hunter Biden's laptop. And if you watch that press conference, somebody tried to ask them about questions about something else. And they were like, no, we're here to talk about Hunter Biden's laptop, <laughs> right? That is what they care about. And even if Kevin McCarthy would rather focus on issues of greater concern to the voters, you know, he needs every single one of their votes if he's be going to become speaker. So he needs to keep Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, on board. Marjorie Taylor Greene is in the House because she wants to investigate a bunch of conspiracy theories related to Joe Biden and pursue a bunch of ludicrous impeachment. You know, and Stuart, I mean, is I guess the thing is, is that there's no accountability from the Republican base. Right. Or will there be any punishment or any consequences for telling your base that this is an election about inflation and crime and then doing literally nothing on those two subjects and just doing weird investigations? You know, uh, Joy, the, the thing about the Republican Party that's sometimes hard for some of us who worked in the party to grasp this, the Republican Party is what it wants to be. It is not a governing party anymore. It is a party that is about one thing, and that is the acquisition of power. Um, that's how cartels are. That's how narco cartels are. No one asks a narco cartel, what is your real purpose here? Um, and they don't care about these issues. And what's interesting is to see that voters pretty much saw that they didn't care about it. 
I mean, what was the Republican plan to fight inflation? What was the Republican plan to lower gas taxes? They didn't have one. Um, and because of that, they lost the election. And look, I think we exist in a world where two things are true. I don't think it's good for the country that they're going to be doing, you know, crazy stuff like going after Hunter Biden's laptop. But I tell you what, it is really good for Joe Biden's reelection chances because Americans on the whole just don't give a damn about Hunter Biden's laptop. They care about real problems. And the president has been good about actually solving problems. And I want to let you both weigh in on this, because the other thing that is clear that people really don't care about is all the things that even right wing evangelicals have said they care about. Right. Um, they did care about overturning Roe v. Wade. They don't care too much about women. But I mean, you now have evangelicals trying to do the wholesale shift to the new the new Jesus, which they want it to be DeSantis and now saying Trump used us. There's a whole piece in the Washington Post. Donald Trump can't save America. He can't even save himself. He used us to win the White House. We had to close our mouths and eyes when he said things that horrified us. Really? Because they treated Trump as if he was sent by God. Stuart first. It was all a lie, right? They really didn't care about the God stuff. They just said it. No, I don't think they did. And first, I think it's important that we remember that we're talking about white evangelicals. Um, It was uh, African-American evangelicals who saved Alabama from Roy Moore. Um, this is really about race, not about evangelicals. And what the evangel- white evangelicals have become is largely, I mean, there are some well-intentioned people there, but for the most part, it is a, a group that supports a, um, white, a, a, how to keep white people in power. That is so much of what this is about. Um, and people see it as disingenuous. It's not where the whole country is. And it's, it's absolutely just tragic that they have, uh, managed to hijack what at one point was a well-intentioned movement. Uh, and to, to, one person in it stands out to me as somebody who's played this game, Michelle, probably better than anyone else, just because she has the skill set as a TV, uh, as a TV person, as a former reporter, is Carrie Lake. Because she, to me, is the perfect, she had a choice to make, whether she would be as disingenuous as these white evangelicals are saying, oh, no, 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 we really didn't like Trump at all. He used us. And or standing fast with him. She's standing fast. She ran right to Mar-a-Lago and said, I'm not switching. I'm not switching horses. I'm not doing like Candace and the others who are something like I really never liked Trump. He's rude. She's like, I'm sticking with him. What do you think that means for what she does next? Well, I don't think, I mean, she doesn't have a political career outside of Trumpism, which I think is what makes her different than a lot of these other figures who, you know, has sort of had a history in right-wing politics, hitched their wagons to Trumpism, but are sort of happy enough to put DeSantis in front instead. You know, she is, she is where she is only because of her fealty to Donald Trump. And so, you know, if she's going to have a future, um, either in political office or in kind of right wing entertainment news media, um, I think that there is no, you know, it, it doesn't make it, it doesn't make good career sense for her to make a break. Right. She, he's kind of her only ticket. And, you know, Stuart, then I wonder what that means. If you still have some diehards who stand with him, it's a schism in the party, right? They have to choose whether they go with old Jesus or new Jesus. And he literally declared himself to be Jesus, by the way. On the eighth day, apparently, after God created all of creation, he created Ron DeSantis to then come back hundreds of years later and be our king. Well, look, Joy, I'm in the camp that Donald Trump is going to be the next nominee and that the best day that Ron DeSantis will have if he does run will be the day he announces. 
This is a guy who couldn't win a debate against Charlie Crist. Um, he has no idea what he's getting into when he runs against uh, Donald Trump. And just, you know, if you're sitting inside that Ron DeSantis camp, what you have to realize is even if you manage to defeat Donald Trump, Donald Trump will not do what is normal when the, when the party, when the primary ends the war ends. He will continue to try to stop Ron DeSantis from being president. And he has that power. He is not Ted Cruz, who will take the knee and suddenly become a sycophant. He will fight him till the last dog dies. And by the way, DeSantis doesn't have the one thing you really need to go national in politics. Charisma. Ain't got none. Stuart Stevens and Michelle Goldberg, thank you both very much. Who in the week is still ahead. But first, how the blue wave bypassed most of the black candidates running for top state offices and what that says about the Democratic leadership's priorities. We'll be back after this. This election made history before the votes were even cast, with a very diverse field of candidates. There were 11 black contenders for U.S. Senate this year. Two of them, incumbent Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, have advanced to a runoff in Georgia. And then there were the five black nominees for governor, including a record three black women. When it came to state office, some black candidates won their races for attorney general, secretary of state and treasurer. But in those gubernatorial and Senate races, only one Democratic black candidate won, Maryland's Wes Moore, who will become the state's first black governor, as well as the only sitting black governor nationwide. Black voters and specifically black women voters are the backbone of the Democratic electorate. So why did this prove so difficult? Our next guest can shed light on the issue. She recently did an exit interview with black women voters. And joining me now, Melanie Campbell, CEO and president of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. All right, Melanie, tell me what this exit poll found. Well, hi, Joy. It's so great to, to see you and be with you on this big Friday night. Black women were very clear. It was about the issues, the threat, if you will. It was about racism. It was about hate crimes. It was about reproductive rights, voting rights. And so the, the whole notion about saving this democracy, black women were very, very clear why it was important. And when it got down to what happens, what's, what's concerned about, about what's the most important thing that you're concerned about with your family? Racism was top, was number one. So it was very, very clear that even though you didn't hear a whole lot in this election, but people talked about racism. You know, it was, it was, you know, after George Floyd and last year, all of a sudden you didn't hear anybody we were talking about racial justice, justice, if you will. And that was uh, very, very apparent in this poll. And I'm looking at the, we can put the second one up again. So when we, when people, when voters were asked their top issue, as you said, racism and the rise in hate crimes is number one. Reproductive rights was number two. Criminal justice and policing was number three, something we didn't hear about. We heard about crime, 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 but not criminal justice. And on the issues of the top three issues, about 45% or 41 to 45% said voting rights, reproductive rights, and structural racism. That's different from the exit poll that we saw, the general exit poll we saw from NBC that had inflation exactly. as number one, abortion as number two then crime, then gun policy. Do you think that the emphases of the candidates, the black candidates who are running in Wisconsin and in, uh, in Arkansas in Florida and Kentucky, et cetera, I wouldn't take out Kentucky because I think he ran a really strong race in a tough state, were too focused on the issues the national broader audience cared about and not the black audience. I want to just play for you a little bit of some of the ads that were being run by some of these candidates. Take a look. As a judge and chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, I led with a commitment to justice and integrity. It's the same approach I'll take to the Senate. Most senators couldn't tell you the cost of a gallon of milk. 
Thanks, Ruben. Where how much beef is going up this year? Murders, robberies, aggravated assaults, total violent crime, all lower than a year ago. Under her leadership, there has been the most dramatic decrease in violent crime in the city's history. They said we never lower crime, but I said never tire. There's a consultant class, and, and both parties have a consultant class, but in the Democratic Party, it seems that they were steering these campaigns to focus on the issues that the broader audience cared about and not the issues that we see in your exit poll. Do you agree with that? Um, I was in Florida, and I would say yes. I, I, some of the feedback I got uh, about uh, some of the things is, that ads you showed is one example. It may have uh, impacted some voters, but Black voters in Florida had those concerns. Yes, definitely. A concern around violence, like everybody does, right? Uh, but really, the the real threat was what was that black folks were getting locked up uh, for trying to vote, right? The, that's a justice issue. Um, the, the the reality that I'm from Florida, born and raised, and so the uh, the, the uh, folks who are moving into into Florida and Texas are a lot of the white nationals. So there's a lot of undercurrent going on. They really didn't get discussed in this election. And so when we talk about what's, how we prepare for the next two years and, and, and the concerns that we have and the, the, the way the numbers broke down, the people who voted uh, for some of these right wing candidates, really, it was uh, it was about race. It was about the concern about uh, being taken over by the brown people and all of that. And so the reality is we have to continue to push this and push this administration, push the Congress and get down on the ground in the states where people are living this reality every day as this yeah. uh, issues around racism and white nationalism. Right. I mean, the is Indeed. I mean, the three Democrats, three out of the four Democrats in Wisconsin won. The only black Democrat that was on the ballot lost. And that's Mandela Barnes. I, and lastly, on that very point about the right to vote, there's been all of this litigation because Georgia is trying to deny Saturday voting in this critical runoff election. There's now been a ruling. A judge said that Georgia law does allow counties to offer early voting on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. This is a lawsuit that was um, filed by um, Senator Warnock. Uh, how important is that? allowing Saturday voting um, in this Georgia runoff, in your view? Um, um, early voting really works. Um, and even though people act like it's not, we still are in, a, in a dealing with COVID-19, right? So opportunities to have multiple opportunities to vote. Uh, you still on election day have the problems of long lines in many places. And most of those long lines are in black and brown communities and poor communities. And so the more opportunities to vote, um, that's all the better for this democracy that we fought so hard to save. Indeed. Uh, Melanie is going to stick around with us. Uh, we're not going to let her go anywhere because she's going to help us kick off the weekend with who won the week. And that is next. So stay right there. Well, it was quite the week from the end of the Pelosi era to quite possibly Twitter. And it is time to play... Ah, yes. Who won the week? Melanie Campbell is back with me. And Melanie, my friend, tell us who won the week. Uh, Karen Bass, Congresswoman Karen Bass, who is the mayor, uh, first woman, uh, black woman mayor of Los Angeles, the number, what, number two city uh, as far as population goes. And also also say uh, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi as well. I think women won the week. 
Yeah, women definitely won the week. Well, I'm staying in California. I think we agree right now. Congratulations to mayor-elect Karen Bass. But also, I got to give it to Nancy D'Alessandro Pelosi. Listen, she ended her speakership with class and grace. She passed the torch to a new generation. And she took a punch and gave the punches she need for the children. Melanie Campbell, thank you very much. Uh, and look at that. Let's thank let her get her much. flowers and get her applause. Thank you very much, Melanie. And thank you. That is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.